0: Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success, we reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 25 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel Podcast. And joining me today is co host Ashi Vale. Today we'll be speaking with Anthony Creswell. Born in England and emigrated to Ireland with his parents in 1963, Anthony has been involved with the world of wine and food since 1966, the first 20 years spent in the world of wine working with wine merchants, vineyards, and wine producers. He joined his father in Timoleague, County Cork in the late 1980s and then took over the management of Amaro Smokehouse in 1998. Since then, he has one mission, to produce only the finest products from smoked organic salmon to smoked chicken, smoked duck, smoked picanha beef, and and smoked, dry, cured bacon. Welcome, Anthony.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Anthony, we're so excited to have you here. You've been a host for us, showcasing the wonderful smoked products that you offer to travelers. We would love to hear how you got into that.
1: Well, the word of smoking, I suppose I avoided it for some time because when I was in my late teens, I had a furious row with my dad and uh, I was given a, a week to either find a job or he put me in the army. And in those days you did what you were told, but I was lucky, fortunate. I had a friend staying with me from, from down in West Cork and his parents had a hotel down there and Peter was going to go up to Dublin to work for a wine company the next day. So uh, he said, uh, look, you better come with me. So the next day Peter and myself got the train at Cork for Dublin and that was me gone for 20 odd years around the world in wine. And then I came back from from Australia, five years in Australia, came back from Australia and set up a little wine company in Kinsale, which was and still is the food capital of Ireland. And that was only about half an hour away from from Timanique. So I had a wine company there for a year or two, but we had a minister for finance who bumped the the duty up on wine and everything. And it made things very impossible for a small little person like me. So I had two options, really. One was to head off overseas in the wine business or go and help my father who was um, smoking salmon and chickens. It was really sort of a glorified hobby for him, but it was a sort of a niche market, a bit like wine. So I thought, right, we'll go and join forces, which we did, and that's all led us to arguing and fighting for the next 15 years uh, until I took over. Being involved in the wine business, you were dealing with wonderful tasting and smelling food, uh, drinks and so on, food. and so moving into, into producing the food was almost a natural progression.
2: Why did you get into wine in the first place?
1: Well, right, purely because my friend, Peter, he was going to Dublin to work for a wine company up there. He contacted them and he asked if he could bring a friend as well. Um, so off I went, and that was my introduction to wine, was to working in, in the wine company, bottling wine and things like that there.
2: Anthony, do you think your experience in wine has somehow allowed you to appreciate smoked products more and improve how you process and sell them?
1: Well, I think certainly the, the fact that one's been drinking and tasting wine for, you know, you, you develop ability to taste things and to be able to differentiate flavors and appreciate flavors and, as you get them and smells as well. And that certainly helped one in the world of food as well. Because taste and smell is is all part of food as as much as it is wine.
2: Anthony, I remember you speaking with me a while ago about how you smoke the fish that that you sell, starting from how you catch it. Can you walk us through the journey of how your products get made? It would be fascinating to understand the start, everything that goes on from, you know, when you catch it to when someone eats it.
1: Yeah. Well, no, certainly. I mean, in days gone by, we used to use wild Atlantic salmon, which were salmon that were caught by the fishermen either in the rivers or out at sea and drift nets. That's where the original salmon came from. We would get them in the summer months. We'd then freeze them down and then come the uh, come Christmas time when everybody seems to want smoked salmon, we'd then thaw them out and smoke them. And nowadays, because the stocks of wild salmon greatly diminished. We now use an organically farmed salmon, which are salmon that are grown in cages off the west coast of Ireland. And uh, we've been using those since 2004, when we became a certified organic smoker. And then in 2006, we stopped buying wild salmon totally and went over to, to organically farmed salmon. So we get the salmon, we thaw them out, we then fillet them, And then we will brine them. We'll put them in a mix of sea salt that we get from Portugal, a little bit of raw cane organic sugar we get from Costa Rica, and a lot of water. We soak them in the brine for a number of hours, depending on the size of the fish. And then we would take them out and dry them in the smoker overnight. And then the following morning, we would trim them and pin bone them and then smoke them for maybe another uh, 18 to 24 hours. And we smoke them with oak sawdust. We use oak, I suppose. My 20 years in the wine business, where the best wines are matured in oak casks, it makes sense to smoke the finest smoked salmon with oak as well. And then once we smoked it, it comes out, we then pack it, and off it goes around the world.
2: Anthony, where and how do you sell the smoked salmon now?
1: Well, we sell to a few specialty food shops within Ireland, a few restaurants. Uh, we have one or two overseas as well. We do quite a lot online through an online shop there. And again, that's very busy at Christmas time. So we do maybe 20, 20, 20, 25% of our turnover would be coming up to Christmas. So everybody wants it then. We're very happy to ship it pretty well all over the world.
2: And for our listeners, Anthony also offers tours and tastings of the smoked salmon. So. If you're in Timber League in that part of Ireland, it's a great way to understand the local region and the artisan products that, that he makes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's going, Anthony?
1: Well, very well indeed, and it's a great pleasure. We are very isolated where we are, and we're not on a main road, and we're hidden from the world, really, surrounded by trees and, and a beautiful location. When people find us, it's really a delight to see them. And we love sort of talking to them and showing them around and having a little taste. And they go away, hopefully happy and educated in how we can produce uh, some great food.
0: Anthony, you were saying earlier that you were focusing really on a quality product as opposed to quantity. And I think that that is really what today's food loving travelers want and, and food loving consumers. We, we're really looking for those quality, artisanal, and locally produced products. How has that affected your business philosophy? Because some people just want to sell as much as possible. And they might somewhat be concerned about the the quality, but it sounds like you're really focused on the quality and not so much on the quantity. So how has that impacted sales and your overall business philosophy?
1: I think because we have reached almost a capacity in terms of producing more, we can't physically produce much more than we do. Uh, That is a limitation. So we're not really interested in producing more in terms of quantity. We just want to produce a better and better product. That I think is an important factor. Basically, I'm too old to consider expanding and growing and making, building more more buildings and so on. Because I've been there, done that. We did that 20 years ago when we built a new smokehouse. We borrowed money to do that. We've now paid everybody back. We don't owe anybody any money. So we're in the fortunate position uh, that everything we sell the benefit of that comes straight to us and not to anybody else. So we don't really want to grow anymore. We don't need to. But all we want to make sure is that what we produce is better and better every year.
0: Do you have any children that would be interested in continuing on with the business?
1: I wish. (laughs) Yes, there are five of them. But uh, I suppose the youngest would be the one that has, has expressed some interest. I think he has a reason for it but I will have to hang on for at least another 10 years before he's of an age enough to do it. We will tackle that as it happens.
0: Do you think that if he chooses not to continue, that there'll be a certain kind of art will be lost?
1: I would hope not, because it's not just me here. We have three or four others working within a smokehouse who have the ability and skills probably far greater than I do to do certain things. And hopefully that they will persist and continue on.
2: Looking back, Anthony, is there something you would have done differently when starting the business or building the business?
1: No, I don't think so.
2: Any advice that you might have given yourself when you were younger? I'm
1: not that sort of mentality, I'm afraid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What is your philosophy for life? (laughs) I think enjoying
1: it (laughs) and uh, trying to make sure that people enjoy what one does as well.
0: Maybe drawing on your old wine knowledge and just cracking open a bottle of wine and maybe having some nice uh, smoked meats with that. Does that sound about right right now?
1: Sounds a lovely idea. When are you going to come and join me,
0: Eric? Well, I'm just across (laughs) the Irish Sea, so I could be there tomorrow.
2: (laughs) So I know that you not only smoke fish, but you also smoke meats Where are the meats from? Are they from Ireland or do you import them from elsewhere?
1: No, they're all Irish, and they're all as local as we can can find them Um, Say for instance, the chickens that we smoke, they all come from uh, local chicken farmers And in fact, every chicken we sell, we always give a a traceability We always mention the, the name of the grower on the label I think is important because I think people like that contact going back. Uh, things like the smoked duck, we, we buy it from a particular company up in County Monaghan, the Silver Hill uh, Food, Silver Hill Ducks. is their own particular breed of duck, which is quite superb. Uh, what else do we have? The, the bacon we source locally. Uh, the pork we source locally. locally. Uh, and The beef, again, you know, we'll buy organic beef and use that for smoking. But we only really have those three or four products. We used to do a bit of smoked eel, but unfortunately eel is now the fishing for eel in in Ireland has been banned. So we can't get that at the moment.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Traveling Spoon. Want to try authentic food on your next travels? Traveling Spoon connects travelers with authentic food experiences from cooking classes to homemade meals in people's homes around the world. The company's mission is to make travel meaningful. Visit a local home in Bali, head out to pick ginger and lemongrass from your host's garden, and then learn to grind curries from scratch, or meet a grandmother in Italy and learn to make handmade pasta that you share together over wine. Today's guest is actually a Traveling Spoon host in Ireland who offers a tour and taste of smoked salmon that he smokes the way his father used to. Immerse yourself in local culinary cultures at TravelingSpoon.com.
2: Anthony, while I was in Ireland, I had noticed the importance that was given to locally produced and you know sourced. Why is that so important over there? I think it's great, but why is that so much more important in Ireland and, uh, than it seems in other parts of the world right now. I suspect
1: the size of the country, the size of the population, that, uh, and knowing people is an integral part of being in Ireland, that's probably, because it's not vast, we say in other countries, where food is, is sort of mass produced, there's no real connection between the producers and the, and the customer. Here, I think the consumer enjoys knowing that Paddy McCarthy down the road produced the chickens or something like that. You know, there's a a link going on. I think that link is not of any interest to people in large countries, large populations. But unless you're living in the country, uh, but if you're living in cities and and urban areas, I don't think you can have that link between the producers.
0: Anthony, do you have any information about Whether consumers are willing to or how happy they are to pay extra for quality products, I was speaking with someone else this week who owned a a restaurant in Canada, and he participated in an accreditation program where they documented that a certain percentage of all their ingredients and produce was from their province, and he found out that the consumers really didn't care. And I was wondering if that's the same in Ireland or if you've noticed what you've noticed with regard to that kind of procedure.
1: There is a, a certain small niche market of people who are more concerned about the quality than they are about price. And I'd like to think that, that we're in that niche with our customers, where they want us to produce the best, and the fact that it's costing them. Uh, more than they can get anywhere else, is largely irrelevant. My father had this wonderful expression, if you couldn't sell something, if you doubled the price, it would sell out overnight. And we had this experience a couple of years ago when we had to increase the price of our salmon salmon by about 25% because the price of the salmon itself went up dramatically. I was petrified that it was going to have a significant impact on our sales. And this was just before Easter. But actually, it had absolutely zero effect at all. No one queried it. No one questioned it. So it's, it's, I guess it's now got to the stage where people do start querying the price with me. I say, well, look, sorry, I'm not interested in talking to you. And I let them <laughs> go and do their, their deals and their bartery with other people because mm-hmm. they won't do it with me.
0: So when you had to increase the price of the salmon, you said earlier that if you were going to advise yourself when you're younger that you wanted to be honest and truthful with yourself and your customers, do you just tell your customers that you've had a cost increase? Is that how you handle it? Yes. Um, and that's it. So that's good. So they believe you and the process continues. That's great.
1: That's but it great. didn't seem to bother them. And even now, you know, we still, I think, probably are one of the most expensive ones in the, in the country. But That doesn't stop people buying from us again and again and again. Uh, say something.
2: (laughs) Anthony, what would you say has been the greatest challenge for you or for other small food producers out there?
1: I think that's a very hard thing to find an answer to. There's practical challenges like the distribution of the product, getting it from A to B. There's the, the challenges we constantly face with bureaucracy and health and hygiene rules and regulations uh, all sorts of things like that but in terms of selling it and marketing it and making people enjoy it um, that's not really a, a problem
0: a quick little cut in here anthony you wrote in the pre-show interview that it was creating the event or the experience yes
1: yeah, so well a little bit more on that the the creating an experience of visitor who wants to come and see how bread is made. He doesn't really want to see uh, flour going in one end of a machine and loaves of bread coming out the other. He wants to see people mixing the flour to make the dough, to uh, shaping the bread themselves by hand and popping it into the oven and so on. I think that's what people want to see, and much the same when people want to see where food is produced. They like to see the involvement of people, and... Uh, things produced in a maybe an artisan way i mean when people come here and they they'll see us flirting fish by hand they'll see us smoking it with proper smoke it's not injected and it's not sprayed on things that's really what people like and i think also the the ambiance, the atmosphere where it's done if it's been produced in a factory setting it's going to be very hard to create something interesting uh, i remember in the world of wine going into wine cellars And some were wonderful ancient things. You could see the character of the wine in the building, whereas some of them, they were just big factories where wine grapes were coming in one end and wine coming out there. And it had no impression on one at all. So that's really, I think, where I'm coming from. That when a visitor comes to us, he sees where we are in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by trees, and there's nothing else really to distract And they see a wooden timber clad building and old fashioned ways of smoking and processing. I think they like that.
2: We're certainly seeing a trend where people are so interested in producer tours because it truly gives them an appreciation for what they're eating. You know, to be able to see how someone transforms a product and the number of processes that go into it and the care and attention that's given to making these beautifully and tasty dishes or or products so it's quite i'd say it's really impressive to be able to show that while also producing these products on your own and keeping the manufacturing process going while creating an experience for these travelers have you found anthony that people buy more or appreciate your smoked goods more after their tours
1: oh, i think so yes okay they don't buy there and then but they will certainly come back to us later on in the year. Uh, and hopefully they will want to buy again then and they do which is always a pleasure i mean one of the things because we're we're using a very natural product we don't have any chemicals or we don't inject anything and it's just very simple ingredients i mean our smoked salmon is really it's it's good old-fashioned irish salmon it's a a bit of sea salt from portugal it's a a little bit of sugar from uh, costa rica or colombia there's a bit of oak sawdust that actually fine enough comes from germany but there's just those four simple ingredients there's nothing else added to it and in many ways it's like they used to produce smoked salmon years and years ago before we had fridges and freezers it act as a preservative to keep product from when it's in season to so you could eat it out of season
2: anthony is there a legacy that you hope to leave behind
1: I would hope that uh, the name Amara would continue to be uh, connected with some superb smoked salmon and smoked chicken and smoked duck. Uh, Yes, I would hope that would be a sort of legacy.
2: That's wonderful. Do you have a favorite food travel memory that you'd like to share with us?
1: Well, a difficult one, having been traveling around the world quite a bit uh, in one's earlier life. But I suppose, in fact, probably almost the last major food travel was a trip out to to Canada, um, out to Prince Edward County. Uh, Ontario to, to see how they did food tourism there. A group of us from Ireland, food ambassadors, I think we were, we were about 10 of us, and we, we went out to see how they had managed to create food trails and things like that. And that was a really very enjoyable and educational experience. We really enjoyed that.
0: Are you still part of the food ambassadors in Ireland? I guess they disbanded that group, but were you part of it still?
1: I think they changed it to... Forgive me if I get this a bit wrong. I think there was there were food champions. I think we were then.
0: That's and, it. Food champions. Yes.
1: And uh, and then they created food ambassadors. Some went on for a second period, and I think I didn't. I think I just did the the, the one year as a, as a food champion.
0: Did you get some benefit out of participating as a food champion then?
1: Oh, certainly, certainly one did because one was able. One was in discussion and talking with other people who were involved with food. I know when we built the smokehouse here, one of my original ideas was to have a, a shop in the front and the office in the back, uh, and the shop would be well welcoming visitors to the to the smokehouse, and they could have a a taste, or maybe even a glass of wine or a glass of cider to go with it, and that would be an interesting little thing. But because we're sort of cut off from the main main roads and so on. I don't think it would worked. But also my wife told me I had to have an office. So
0: (laughs) of course. (laughs) I get that too. We lost it.
1: We lost it. (laughs) I think one of the interesting things we actually did I did learn ever in in Canada was that where they did some of these producers they did have shops, but they weren't just selling their own produce. They were selling other people's products around the place. And uh, so that was I thought a brilliant idea. I was very impressed. Wanted to do it here but never have.
0: As destinations go, we look at some of the leading destinations in the world in terms of food tourism, you know, who's doing a great job, who's not doing so great or whatever. And Ireland is really at the top of the list, just in terms of the product development, the marketing, the strategy, really, it's, it's probably in the top three destinations in the world. How are you or are you tied into the national food tourism strategy? And how do you see it trickling down to benefit you at the local level?
1: Oh I think very much so in many ways, a lot of it started in, in West Cork here ten twenty fifteen years ago, and we, there was an organization called Fuchsia Brands, and that sort of developed the idea of West Cork as being the, the foodie center of Ireland. And we have some fantastic cheeses produced down there and other foods as well. there are a lot of small and not so small, dedicated food producers here. And it's sort of spread from here up to other parts of the country. It has started in a way down here, and the rest of the country has followed suit in many ways.
2: Anthony, in fact, we brought you on as a Travelling Spoon host partly because of the government. The Ministry of Tourism was really excited about us partnering with them and bringing on local artists and producers, and so it's... I think Ireland's been doing a fantastic job of showcasing their food and wares to the world.
1: Well, indeed. But um, we do have some superb food, which we love telling people about.
2: Speaking of food, do you have a favorite dish?
1: No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I love our smoked duck, but that's biased. Uh, But no, I'm more than happy I eat anything, really. As long as it's good, I really enjoy it.
0: You know, Anthony, you were saying before that you have really good food in Ireland, but we also need to talk about the experiences. You have the history, you have the culture, you have the music you have Guinness, what more do you want, right? (laughs) And food loving travelers come for the full experience. If we just wanted great smoked salmon or or smoked beef, we could order that online, like you said. But it's the experience of traveling through the green Irish countryside, maybe stopping at an old monument or something, finally ending up at your farm, getting to meet you. That's the, the true experience. That's what people are traveling for.
1: I think so. And also, a lot of the restaurants and so on, they enjoy using local food because they don't have to mess around with it too much because it is good as it is. And I think a lot of restaurants, probably in in cities and so on, they'll take food and they will then modify it themselves fairly dramatically. They may well buy our smoked salmon, but by the time you get it on your plate in the restaurant, you wouldn't know where on earth it came from. So when they're out in the country and they're in the local pubs and the local restaurants, those restaurants are providing with simple dishes made from local food. And the local food is so good. It doesn't need the messing around uh, by by the chefs. I know the chefs will get very upset with me on that.
0: Shifting gears a little bit towards the future. We were talking before about the food tourism experiences in Ireland and the quality of the products and the experiences and so on. If you could think forward about 10 years Based on what's been happening with food tourism development and promotion for Irish experiences, where do you see the country in 10 years in terms of food and beverage tourism?
1: I would hope not a a great deal different than it is really now because, yes, there will be more uh, producers who will be opening up because they will see the benefits of having visitors. I think that's important. But in terms of the sheer pure numbers of producers, I don't think they will increase dramatically. There is a certain... On the agricultural front, there are farmers who are producing a massive amount of milk and beef and things like that that are selling commercially, and they're finding, I think, quite hard to make any money. I think some of those may well pull in and start producing their own high-quality, relatively low production of cattle and milk. I mean, there is someone who's started producing their own perfectly natural milk not very far away from here. It's quite expensive, but people are buying it. But it, it actually tastes of milk. It's the proper thing. You pour it and a bit of cream comes out of the top. Milk nowadays tends to be much more bland, but this is real joy to drink. But there are farmers who will probably go that route and then they'll find their own way, a little bit like wine producers. They will find their own style and their own quality and their own taste according to the, the land they're, they're farming. I'd like to see more of that happening. In a way, that sort of indicates that pushes that comment of mine of, about trying to get better and better rather than bigger and bigger.
2: Do you have a pet peeve in business?
1: Only really dealing with bureaucracy and the, the challenges that... But uh, I remember a few years back, we had a number of inspectors from uh, the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Marine. And we had the organic trust inspections and so on. So we were getting played with inspectors telling us to do this and do that. Eventually, we managed to get one of them to go. So uh, before we did that, we had to comply with various things. And one of them was getting rid of our wooden-handled filleting knives in the, in the processing area. And I fortunately asked them why. They couldn't give me an answer there and then. they came back about three or four weeks later uh, saying, sorry, we can't find any reason why you can't use wooden-handled knives. So now whenever they ask me to do anything, I ask them why. And wait their response.
2: That's that's great advice. (laughs) You had mentioned something about your customers and the smoked duck, Anthony. What is it you didn't like about what they say?
1: Well, we because the duck has a natural amount of fat on it, and we just smoke the duck breast. And sometimes there might be fifty percent fat and fifty percent meat on it. And when I do a tasting, yeah, it's a it's a bit. Worrying the number of people who won't eat the fat. But I do try to persuade them that of all the fats you can eat, duck fat is the best possible fat for you. It's the closest thing to olive oil. On that advice, half of them will actually pluck up courage and eat it. And they will smile at the end.
0: So Anthony, do you take the duck fat remains then and turn it into something else? You know, reduce, reuse, recycle, right?
1: We, when we're smoking it, we do have a certain amount of, of fat comes off it when we're smoking them because we cook them and smoke them at the same time and we do uh, capture that fat and it's so wonderful for roasting your potatoes in at christmas time or any other time of the year
0: indeed i have had duck fat roasted potatoes and whereas i'm not a big meat person but uh, i can understand the excitement that other meat lovers have around it it is definitely a richer flavor
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it just adds to the texture and, uh, and the subtleness when you're eating them
0: indeed Well, Anthony, thanks so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. I really didn't know much about the smoked meat industry in Ireland and really enjoyed hearing your stories. And I definitely am going to have to put your place on my list of next places to travel to, especially when I'm in Ireland. So thanks again for your time today, Anthony. It was a real pleasure.
1: Well, it's great talking to you and thank you very much indeed. I hope that uh, I haven't told too many secrets or upset too many people in my comments
2: (laughs) not at all anthony it was a real pleasure having you on board thank you so much for your time
1: it's my pleasure indeed and thank you very much for asking
2: me
0: Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. We empower local communities and businesses with the food and beverage tourism knowledge and tools needed to reach new consumers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, every year we shepherd a community of almost 100,000 professionals in over 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our family at World foodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better.